Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For our Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, Kevin Smith, podcaster here at the Fans First Sports Network at the Steel Curtain Network, high school football coach in the great state of New Jersey, and thrilled to be with you again as we proceed in the always entertaining 2023 NFL football season. Man, lots to talk about on today's show. We're going to talk about the number 34. This is episode 34. And a couple of great football players, two of my favorites from my childhood who wore that number. We're going to talk about the really interesting San Francisco-Philadelphia game from this past week, what that may mean going forward. We're going to talk about a, a concept in the game of football that doesn't get discussed a lot, but, but we really saw its value this week and in a couple of games. And that's the concept of the middle eight. What's the middle eight mean in football? And, and what's its relevance to this current NFL season, in particular, the weekend we just we just uh, came through. And then in the second half of the show, we're going to look at the current state of the league, right? And, and talk about projected playoff matchups, who could be in, who could be out. It's been a fascinating football season. I don't know what the heck's going to happen next, man. I mean, my buddy Pez, he is killing it making picks this year, still picking games at about a 60% clip. And that is hard to do given the unpredictability of this football season. So let's dive right in with the number 34. This is episode 34, man. And when I think of NFL football players who wore the number 34, two running backs come to mind. Two of the guys who were favorites of mine, even though I was a Pittsburgh Steeler fan, and these were not Pittsburgh Steeler players. But as a kid, uh, if you grew up in the era that I grew up in and you didn't love both Walter Payton and Earl Campbell, there was something wrong with you. And it's fascinating when I think about these guys because you couldn't really get two individuals who were more opposite than these two, right? Walter Payton, who went to, to little-known Jackson State University, uh, an HBCU school, which uh, out of Mississippi, he was not an overly recruited young man, predominantly because of his size. Walter Payton went about 5'11 and 200 pounds. Played way bigger than that. But as a high school kid, he was about 5'11", 185. And, and he never had the most blazing speed. What Walter Payton had was a gift of grace and the ability to make player defenders miss. 
and a physicality that when he needed it was way more pronounced than it looked on his smallish frame. And so he winds up going to a, to a smaller school, Jackson State, as opposed to Earl Campbell, who goes to the University of Texas and plays for Frank Broyles, one of the most widely regarded college football coaches of that era, the 1970s. And they could not have been any more different in terms of their style. Walter Payton, as I just said, I mean, he could make you miss. He could go around you. He could jump over you. One of the most enduring images I have of Walter Payton is him leaping over the pile into the end zone as uh, as as a style of scoring. And one of the most enduring images I have of, of Earl Campbell is of him running through defenders en route to the goal line or into the end zone. Anybody who's watched the great NFL films episodes or clips probably remembers that clip of, of Earl Campbell and Jack Tatum basically knocking each other out. It's almost, it's almost like <laughs> the, one of the final scenes in Rocky two, where, where Rocky and Apollo both knock each other down before Rocky struggles to his feet to win the fight before the 10 count, you know, here's Jack Tatum coming. And I mean, my gosh, back then you could put your helmet right under a, an opposing player's chin. And Jack Tatum puts his helmet right under Earl Campbell's chin and Earl Campbell somehow manages to stagger through that hit into the end zone. Both of them wind up going down like Creed and Balboa. It's an awesome image. Uh, they were stylistically just polar opposites, Walter Payton and, and, and Earl Campbell. One of, one of them more like, a, you know, an elegant figure skater in cleats and the other one like a bull. And really, man, I mean, they were built entirely differently, right? You had, you had Walter Payton, whose frame was, uh, I, I don't know quite how, how to describe it. He was, he was lean. He was muscular. But again, man, at, at five, five eleven, maybe, 5'10", 200 pounds tops, uh, he certainly didn't look like a guy that could play power football. But when he needed to, he sure as heck did. And Earl Campbell looked like the prototype power running back, like his physique, his thighs in particular, had been chiseled from stone. Earl Campbell's thighs were just, I mean, into, they, they were like a, a position all unto themselves, right? Anybody who, who remembers back uh, to, to his day just, just remembers looking, looking at him below the waist and being blown away. And, 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 you know, those guys got that way by training hard, but Earl Campbell was never in insane shape. I mean, Earl Campbell was a weight room guy, but he was also an incredibly physically gifted guy. Uh, his training regimen sometimes left a lot to be desired. His coach, Bum Phillips, once famously said, after Earl Campbell failed to finish a mile-long conditioning run, and, and reporters asked him about it, you know, hey, well, you know, what are you going to do? Earl Campbell didn't finish the mile run. And then Bum Phillips famously said, well, when it's first in a mile, I won't give him the ball. That's a great quote. And then Walter Payton was sort of the ultimate in training. Walter Payton used to used to sprint up sand dunes. And I'm not talking about four-foot sand dunes. I'm talking about the deep, deep sand dunes that were often 20 and 30 feet high that you found sometimes on the eastern seaboard. Uh, his training regimen was brutal. We used to try to emulate it as kids. I mean, I grew up near the beach. We'd go over to the beach. We'd run in the little dunes, you know, the dunes that were about eight feet high. We'd run in them 
And, you know, we'd, we'd feel like we were going to throw up after about 15 minutes. And then we'd put on old VHS tapes of Earl of uh, Walter Payton's training regimen and simply be blown away by it. But both of these guys, regardless of their differences, were two of the defining running backs of the 1970s and 1980s. Walter Payton winning a Super Bowl with the 85 Bears, that legendary team. And Earl Campbell never quite getting there. The Houston Oilers were a great team in that era. They were the big foil of the Pittsburgh Steelers. They engaged, they, they played each other in two AFC championship games. Uh, Bum Phillips was once, you know, he, he had a million great quotes, man. He was a quote machine back in the day. And I'll never forget him saying about losing in the 1978 championship game to the Steelers. Last year, we knocked on the door. And next year, we're going to kick that some bitch in. I mean, he had a great way with words. They never really got there, man. But it wasn't, it wasn't because of Earl Campbell. I mean, Earl Campbell running through defenders running over defenders wearing that tearaway jersey back in the day defenders would get a hold of it and then all of a sudden it wouldn't be there anymore they'd be holding they'd be holding cloth and Earl Campbell with his shoulder pads flapping would be running down the field looking for a safety to run over so I loved those two man I loved Earl Campbell I loved Walter Payton I loved to watch them and as kids I'll finish with this thought as kids it was always a fight on the playground when we would get together to play football and everybody would declare like who they were, you know, 15 of us would meet at the playground and, and we'd all start to say like, all right, you know, I'm you know, the quarterback, I'm Dan Marino. Right. And then the you know, you know linebackers on defense, oh, I'm, I'm Jack Lambert. I'm Lawrence Taylor. A few years later, as we got a little bit older. I'm Lawrence Taylor, but I wanted to be Lawrence Taylor, but inevitably the running backs, whoever was going to be a running back would argue over who got to be, Earl Campbell versus who got to be Walter Payton. And I mean, there's no greater tribute, I think, than when little kids want to be you as an athlete. So when I think of number 34, the great Walter Payton, the great Earl Campbell, and some wonderful memories of play of, of playground football with my buddies as a kid. All right, moving, moving to the, the current scene. Wow, we had a, a heavyweight fight. We brought a Balboa and Creed. We had a Balboa and Creed-esque fight on Sunday. Uh, Rocky Balboa, who hailed from the great city of Philadelphia. Well, those Philadelphia Eagles, the number one seed in the NFC, hosted the San Francisco 49ers. That, that game's become a heck of a rivalry. And, you know, the Niners chirped all offseason going into that game about how they felt they'd been robbed in last year's NFC Championship game because of Brock Purdy getting knocked out of the game, and then their backup getting knocked out, and them having to essentially play with Christian McCaffrey uh, at quarterback, being basically without a quarterback. And there was a lot of talk, man. They went back and forth for a long time. And when the game finally arrived, the hype was significant. And boy, did San Francisco back it up. The national consensus is, you know, Philly got smoked and possibly exposed in that game, that the defense is not as good as it was last year, that the run game struggled. Jalen Hurts looked ordinary. San Francisco runs away with that game in Philly. And, you know, you really could make an argument for that because Philadelphia's been flirting with disaster for a while now, really for weeks. I mean, if you go back to late October, they came really close to losing to a Washington Commanders team. That's terrible. That's basically mailed in the season once they started to trade their defensive line away. They've lost nine of their last 11 games. And they nearly knocked off Philly. And then the, the Eagles came within inches of losing to the Cowboys the next weekend. And then the next two weeks, they had to climb out of 17-7 halftime deficits in both games 
to beat the Chiefs and the Bills. And in that Chiefs game, they needed Marcus Valdez-Scanling to drop a touchdown pass that was right in his hands in the final minute to survive. You know, so Philly, Philly may indeed have problems. But they're also in the midst of a ridiculous run in their schedule that's seen them play Kansas City, Buffalo, and San Francisco within 13 days. Three games against three top-level teams in 13 days. And then on Sunday, this coming Sunday, they have to play Dallas. And, I mean, no team has had to endure a four-week stretch like that. And while the Eagles were going through three games like that in 13 days, San Francisco is coming off a mini buy. They had 10 days to prepare. And the Cowboys are going to face the same. The Cowboys haven't played since last Thursday night, and so they'll be coming off of, off a 10-day window to prepare as well. So if Philadelphia could somehow survive that win in Dallas, they closed the season against a fading Seattle team and then the Giants, Cardinals, and Giants again. So yes, the loss to San Francisco was bad, and it certainly exposed some weaknesses. And all the flirting with disaster that Philadelphia has been doing, I finally caught up with them. But, I mean, if there's one thing we've learned about the NFL this, this year, it's that narratives change quickly. I mean, just a few weeks ago, Cincinnati looked like a Super Bowl contender in the AFC, and now they're going to be lucky to make the playoffs. And the Seahawks, they went from 6-3 six and three to 6-6 six and six in a heartbeat. And Minnesota was dead, and now they're not. And Buffalo was great, and now they're not. And the Cowboys and the Dolphins have looked great against bad teams and bad against good ones. I mean, what do we really know about the league right now? Who, who can we count on week in and week out? I mean, it's really hard to say. So today... <clears throat> the narrative on Philly may be negative, and that may be justified. But whether or not that narrative is the same a few weeks from now, uh, that's anybody's guess. And that's what's really made this year so compelling. You just don't know. And as for San Francisco, if the playoffs started today, no one would want to play them. They looked on Sunday in Philly like the team everyone thought they'd be. They were explosive, and they were physical. And Brock, Brock Purdy, he played great football. And Kyle Shanahan coached a heck of a game. So, yes, today, San Francisco is the best team in football. And I, I don't think it's particularly close. But like I just said, let's talk in three weeks. Let's talk in three weeks and see whether or not, like through injury or just the changing tide of this unpredictable season, that narrative holds. All right. One more comment on that San Francisco-Philly game. And it's really kind of a, a comment about a bigger issue. And that bigger issue is something that pertains to a concept that's big in coaching circles, but doesn't get talked about much in the media. And that concept is referred to as the middle eight. And the middle eight is the period of a football game that comprises the final four minutes of the second quarter and the first four minutes of the third quarter. It's really the, you know, the going out and the, and the coming back of the first and second halves. How do you end one half and begin another? The momentum that you can gain or lose in those instances is significant. So in a 60-minute football game, we are talking about the literal middle, the 27th through 34th minutes, where games really often swing on a team's ability to finish successfully. I, I believe that momentum's a real thing in sports and that it often swings the outcome of events. And when a team scores in the middle eight in football or when they come up with a big stop on defense, it often creates a huge momentum shift that can absolutely change the atmosphere of a locker room at halftime or alter the course of play in the second half of a game. 
I mean, that's why coordinators have scripted areas on their call sheets for the middle eight. How do they want to attack the last four minutes of the first half or the first four minutes of the second half? If we have the ball, for example, do we want to be aggressive and try to score? Do we want to slow things down and eat clock, denying our opponent an extra possession in that process? I mean, sometimes that latter tactic can be just as valuable as the former. For example, maybe I've been outplayed in the first half, but I'm hanging around and I'm only down a field goal and I get the ball back with three minutes left. And I recognize, hey, we need points. But really what I need to do is get to the locker room and talk to our offense about a few things and regroup. So rather than try to push the ball down the field, I want to make a first down or two, run out the clock, get to the locker room, meet with my team. You know, if I can do that, that's a key possession. It gives me an opportunity to go in, talk about, you know, hey, we haven't played our best football, but hey, we're right here. We're right here. And if we fix a few things, we're going to win the game. And then we talk about what we need to fix, and we feel good about ourselves, and we head back out. And the opposite, that's obviously true as well. Let's say I take possession of the ball with three minutes to go, and I'm down three, and I go three and out real quick. A run and a couple of passes, and I don't run much time off the clock, and I punt it back to my opponent, and then we give up a late score. I can tell you this, man, from experience, that's a tough locker room environment to have to deal with. That's a tough locker room to get back on its feet, to get its confidence back, to get the belief back. Because now we're down 10 and we know we've been outplayed and we feel dejected. And that hill, that climb, it seems a lot steeper. So plotting a course for the middle eight and then executing that period effectively, that's often hidden in the box score, but it's extremely impactful in the result. And as a coach, you need to assess that period properly and you need to have a feel for what to do and proceed wisely. Which brings us back to San Fran Philly. The 49ers led seven to six when they got the ball with four minutes and 37 seconds remaining in the first half. And they proceeded to drive 90 yards in 10 plays and then to score on a Christian McCaffrey run to put them ahead 14 to six with 38 seconds left in the half. And the Eagles didn't have any timeouts left, and they didn't really have anything and any time to get anything going. And so that was the score when they went to the locker room. And then San Francisco, who had deferred after winning the coin toss, they got possession to start the third quarter and subsequently went 75 yards to open the second half and score another touchdown on a Debo Samuel run. And that made the score 21 to 6. And the entire complexion of the game had tilted in the 49ers' favor. And I don't know if Philly, had they gotten a stop in either situation, if it would have saved the game for them. I think the real turning point of that game was when the Eagles dominated the first quarter, outgaining San Francisco 120 to minus six. But after two long drives, the Eagles had come away with just two field goals and led six nothing. Had they scored on both of those possessions and been up 14 nothing after their dominant first quarter, that may have been a vastly different game. But as it was, The middle eight created the momentum San Francisco needed, and then they pulled away from there. And something happened, something similar happened in the Pittsburgh, Arizona game. With that score tied 3-3, the Steelers took possession at their own 20-yard line early in the second quarter, and they then drove the ball for the next eight minutes, eventually reaching Arizona's one-yard line, where they had fourth and goal from the one with a little over four minutes remaining. And the Cardinals stopped Najee Harris short of the goal line on a run, and they took over on downs. And Arizona then went 99 yards in 15 plays, converting four third downs in the process 
and they scored with 15 seconds left in the half. They then received the second half kickoff, and they quickly went three and out. But on Pittsburgh's first possession, they fumbled at their own 21-yard line. And the Cardinals recovered. They punched it in for another score just three minutes into the half. And the Cardinals won that middle eight 14 to nothing, which allowed them to coast to a 24-10 win. So the middle eight, one of the hidden but essential periods in a football game where it falls on the coaching staff to press the right buttons. How a team schemes and executes in that stretch often has a huge impact on the outcome of the games. And if you want to impress your friends, the next time you're watching a football game and it gets to about four minutes before the half, say to everybody in the room, hey, everybody, listen, middle eight coming up, man. Really important part of the game right now. Let's see what happens. All right. Time to take a quick break. In the second half of the show, we're going to look at the playoff picture, right? What would it look like if the season ended today? Who would be in? Who'd be out? What matchups would we get? And why is all that useless? <laughs> way, to, way to kill your own narrative there, Coach Smith. Yeah, no, but seriously, man, why, despite the fact that that, that information is, is currently compelling, is it all likely to change in this ever-changing season? And how might it change? So come on back after the break. Kevin Smith with you in part two of the episode. We're going to turn our attention now to the current state of the league as we enter week 14, the playoff picture. And really, when you look at the games for this weekend, the NFL is really getting exactly what it wants, given the fact that every single game, every single game on this week's NFL slate has relevance to the playoff picture. That is pretty interesting considering we are now into our 14th week. If the NFL wanted parity, if the NFL wanted fan bases to be engaged and interested, they're certainly getting it. So let's look at that, and we'll do that in just a sec. Before we do that, though, the playoff picture. If the playoffs started today, and they don't, and this is going to change, but if they started today, to give you an idea, in the AFC, Miami would get the bye. Now, that's interesting because a week ago, Miami was the four seed. So it's amazing how quickly things can change in that tightly packed AFC. Miami would get the bye. And then you'd have Baltimore as the two, Kansas City the three, Jacksonville the four. They would host wild card games. Pittsburgh five, Cleveland six, and Indy seven. With Houston, Denver, Cincinnati, and Buffalo all within a game of those last three teams. That's kind of fascinating. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the matchups, the potential matchups in the wild card round, you would get Indianapolis at Baltimore, Cleveland at Kansas City, and Pittsburgh at Jacksonville. And in four of those six games, you'd get backup quarterbacks. Only Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes remain of those six teams who had starters. Uh, of their original starters. In in last week's games, Kenny Pickett knocked out with an ankle injury in Pittsburgh. He's going to get surgery and be out for a couple of weeks. Trevor Lawrence similarly knocked out with an ankle injury in Jacksonville. Unsure of how long he'll be out. But moving forward, you have to think that this casts doubt upon the chances of some of those teams. 
can Indy continue to win with Gardner Minshew or can Pittsburgh win enough with Mitchell Trubisky or Cleveland with, you know, whoever the hell it is playing, playing quarterback in Cleveland right now, they've had four different starters this year. So, I mean, nipping at the heels of those teams are teams quarterbacked by Russell Wilson, CJ Stroud, Josh Allen, and in Cincinnati, a, a surprisingly effective Jake Browning, who was 32 out of 37 for 354 yards on Monday night in their overtime win in Jacksonville. So the teams with the backup quarterbacks, and in some situations, the less competent quarterbacks, are clinging to playoff berths, while the teams with the veteran proven quarterbacks or the hot quarterbacks are nipping at their heels. So which teams get in? I mean, if you know the answer to that, then play the lottery because it's almost impossible to say right now. In all likelihood, it's going to come down to week 18 when you're going to get the divisional games like Cleveland at Cincinnati, Houston at Indy, Pittsburgh at Baltimore. Those are probably going to be games that will decide it. But I mean, one thing I know is this. If the league gets its wish, I mean, you'll see Denver, Buffalo and Houston in and Indy, Pittsburgh and Cleveland out. There's no way the league wants Minshew. Uh, a Trubisky picket combo and the ghost of Joe Flacco on the field while Alan Stroud and Wilson are out. So Jeff Hartman, cue up those conspiracy theories, man. Let's see what the, let's see what the league script says for how the AFC plays out. I mean, in the NFC, things are a little less murky. I mean, it's jammed at the bottom, but at the top right now, Philly's the one seed, San Francisco's the two Detroit, the three Dallas, the four. It doesn't look like that's going to change in any way. Now the now the order may change, right? Philly, San Francisco, Detroit, and Dallas are all within a game of each other. Philly at 10 and 2, the other teams at 9 and 3. Philly and Dallas play this week, so that could change. And then Detroit and Dallas play in a couple of weeks. But otherwise, those teams are going to be locked in as the top four. And then you're going to have that scramble for wild card teams. You have Atlanta, Minnesota, Green Bay. Teams like the Rams, maybe maybe the Falcons, uh, or I'm sorry, maybe the Saints. You know, those are those guys are, are the are going to be vying for the other playoff spot. So it'll be just as jumbled in the NFC at the bottom. The quarterback situation is not quite as bad in the NFC. I, they, it, obviously, with all the backups you have in the AFC, that's a huge issue. But but Hertz in Philly, Purdy in San Francisco, Goff in Detroit. Prescott in Dallas, Atlanta's playing Desmond Ritter again. He he's back not because he got hurt, but because of incompetence. Though you know Jordan Love and Green Bay, the one notable backup is Josh Dobbs in Minnesota. Kirk Cousins being out for the year, but you pretty much have your quarterbacks intact in that group in the NFC. Which brings us to this week's games. Let, let's take a look at this week's slate of games real quick, and and the significance of them. Every game has playoff significance beginning with Thursday night slog from Acrisure Stadium, New England at Pittsburgh, Bailey Zappi versus Mitchell Trubisky. The over-under on that game right now is 30. 30 points is the over-under. So, I mean, really like first team to 16 wins if they even get there. That may be a game where the safe bet is the under, even though it's 30 points combined. Right, I can absolutely see that ending 13 to 10 or some such score. But Pittsburgh somehow is clinging to the number five seed, right? The Steelers right now are the top 
non-division champ wild card in the AFC. That could change at any minute. But that's a must-win game for Pittsburgh, given the fact that they've got some tougher games on their schedule coming up. When you get to the Sunday games, Tampa Bay-Atlanta, that's a huge game in the South. Those teams are separated by one game with Atlanta in first place. Detroit at Chicago. The Lions obviously jockeying for playoff position at the top of the NFC. Indianapolis at Cincinnati, that's almost an elimination game. I mean, neither one of those teams we technically eliminated from the playoffs, but with Indy clinging to uh, the sixth seed and Cincinnati trying to claw their way back in, the loser there really hurts their playoff chances. Jacksonville at Cleveland, same thing for the Browns. They've lost three straight. They're playing Joe Flacco, as I mentioned, at quarterback. Uh, the fact that now Jacksonville is going to go in there with their own backup makes it makes it interesting, uh, at least more competitive. And Jacksonville is competing, obviously, with Houston for the South Championship in the AFC. Huge game there, Jacksonville at Cleveland. Carolina at New Orleans. Carolina is the only team in the NFL that's been eliminated, but New Orleans is just a game back in the NFC South for the division title. So that's a, a pretty much a must win for them. They don't want to fall too behind the Falcons. Houston at the Jets, big game for the Texans for the same reasons. It's a big game for the Jags. Those two teams are neck and neck. And Houston is just on the outside edge of the playoffs looking in. The Rams, the, the surging Rams, who have now put themselves back in the playoff picture, go to Baltimore. Big game for both teams there. Baltimore trying to claim the one seed in the AFC. The Rams trying to stay in the playoff picture in the wild card race in the NFC. Minnesota at Las Vegas, same thing for the Vikings. The Raiders don't look like they're going to be able to, to make it, but uh, but Minnesota certainly has an opportunity. They, they right now are the sixth seed. They could get in. Big, big uh, game out west for them. Seattle at San Francisco, the fading Seahawks, who are now six and six, have to go play the most red-hot uh Best in the NFL right now, 49ers in San Francisco. Tough ask for Seattle. If they lose, they'll fall further back in the playoff picture. A shockingly huge game in Kansas City on Sunday at 425, the national game. Buffalo at Kansas City. Shockingly huge, not for the reasons we thought it would be. If you looked at this game back in August, you'd say, hey, that game's going to be for the number one seed in the AFC. Now it's for Buffalo fighting for their playoff life. And Kansas City trying to lock down the division and remain a, a a home playoff team. Amazing how quickly fortunes change in this league. And and Buffalo, Kansas City being almost an elimination game for the Bills and a big one for the Chiefs just for their playoff chances is kind of shocking. You got Denver at the Chargers. The Chargers, uh, they, they stayed alive technically by eking out a 6-0 win over New England last week in what must have been a dreadful game to watch. Uh, so, so, And Denver at 6-6 six and six is just on the outside edge of the playoff race. This feels like a, an elimination game in the AFC. Philly-Dallas on Sunday night is a huge game. Fourth straight huge game for the Eagles. They've had to play in that stretch. Kansas City, Buffalo, San Francisco, and now Dallas all in a matter of 20 calendar days. Incredibly difficult ask of the Eagles from a scheduling perspective. If they can win that game, they'll pretty much lock up the NFC East. They'll be two up on Dallas in the loss column, and we'll have swept the season series, so effectively three up with four to go. Uh, if Dallas wins, it's going to pretty much logjam everybody at the top of the NFC 
at 10 and three, provided Detroit and uh, San Francisco also win. So that'll be a fascinating game in Dallas on Sunday night. And then you have two Monday night games this week. I don't know why. There's probably a reason why I didn't look it up. But Tennessee at Miami, a big game for the Dolphins. They try to hold on to that number one seed. And Green Bay at the Giants as the Packers try to hold on to the number seven seed in the NFC. So every single game. Oh, by the way, in case you were wondering, Arizona and Washington have are the last two teams to get a bye. Uh, Maybe Arizona, you know, it it wouldn't be an act of cruelty to just put those two teams out of their misery. Arizona could go out with that big upset win over the Steelers last week. And Washington, they could just go out because they got run off the field by Miami. And they kind of look like a team that's packed it in already. So if we just eliminated Arizona and Washington and they didn't come back to the field, I don't think that'd be a bad thing. So that's your playoff picture. And that's our current slate of games. And it's going to be fantastic because the NFL has achieved their goal of creating parity through the draft, through scheduling, and and allowing the fan bases of all 32 teams, for the most part, to be engaged this deep into the season. So whether you like it or not, really, the NFL is getting what it wants. And again, we'll have lots of great stuff to talk about next week when we come back for another episode of The Call Sheet. Real quick, some quick housekeeping before I sign off. If you get a chance, please give me a follow on Twitter at KTSmithFFSN. Uh, I have a video breakdown of the Steelers for you Steelers fans coming out later today on Wednesday on our SCN YouTube channel of where it all went wrong in that game last week against Arizona, looking at the turning point in that game, the crucial series where the Steelers could not get in on fourth and goal from the one late in the second quarter and then gave up a 99-yard touchdown drive to Arizona. We'll break that down. Uh, and I was, I'm was i grateful to Ryan Smith of our Carolina Panthers affiliate for having me on his show. Uh, we did that, that segment last night, and that should run later this week. And so it was great to talk to him about what's going on down there in Carolina. Uh, lots of exciting stuff happening here at FFSN. So we appreciate everybody's support. All right, I'll be back next week. Everybody have a great week. Take care.